Hey everyone, it's the Lady J. Thanks so much for tuning in to I Never Told You What I Do for a Living. I am thrilled to introduce this week's guest, Matt Ricardo, variety artist, writer, and very snappy dresser. My conversation with Matt turned out to be much more deeply personal than I anticipated, as we've only met in real life once. Matt speaks eloquently to some of my own struggles by traveling the trajectory of his career as a performer and how it relates to his identity. Just listening back to it while editing was enough to make me emotional, and I'm so grateful to Matt for joining me. Please give a round of applause to episode 19 of I Never Told You What I Do for a Living with Matt, the gentleman. Well, I'm joined today by Matt Ricardo. Hi, Matt. How you doing? I'm all right. How are you? I'm pretty great. You know, it's the weekend and all that good jazz. I work weekends. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So the first question I always ask people who come on this podcast is, what is your earliest childhood memory of what you wanted to be when you grew up? So ooh, so my, my earliest childhood memory of, of what I ended up doing or, or just anything. Well, so some people have given me like, I've always wanted to be a teacher. And some people have said I wanted to be a fire truck. So I kind of leave that up to you. Like, (laughs) what is your earliest memory of what you thought you would be? And I use I'm using air quotes that you can't see when you were an adult when you were grown up. Okay. Um, I think I think the sort of the, the sort of first answer to that is that I don't remember as a child, giving much thought to it at all. I, I, I was a real um, shy sort of shut-in of, of a kid, and, I, and I, still, I still am, really. So I, I kind of spent a lot of time in my head, you know, um, and, and in my room, and, and I was a solitary, very obvious only <laughs> child. And I, I don't think I gave it much thought. I just... I think I, I often was just kind of interested in what the thing was that I was doing now rather than thinking about, you know, what I, any sort of future stuff, which is still I'm still a bit guilty of. But as I got into my early teens, I realized that my kind of my kind of nerdiness and and solitariness lent itself to computers. So. You know, in the very early 80s, when home computers slowly started to be a thing, I got good at them. And so I think by the time I got to my mid-teens, I thought I would do something in computers. I used to write video games and and, and I had a slightly misspent youth as a hacker. So I, I always thought I would end up basically, my adult life would be me and a computer in a dark room somewhere on my own, <laughs> which is the exact opposite of what it ended up being. <laughs> I was just going to say that's not at all how that played out. No, it's really not. Well, let me go back for, for one moment because I'm very interested in in the fact that you you said that when you were really young that you were just kind of focused on whatever it was that you were doing. Did you not feel like you had pressure from the adults around you, whether it's your parents or your teachers, 
to start to think about what you wanted to be when you grew up or just there wasn't like the the impetus put on that that maybe there is now of like from when you're in kindergarten like here are the careers you can have there's maybe 12 of them and let's get started picking something and these these are for girls and these are for boys oh god <laughs> um I, I i mean that that may have happened but i i honestly have no memory of anything like that um i i didn't have the best relationship with my parents and um if anything it's got worse in adult life um so i i think there were I think there were there was a perfect storm of factors that made me into one of those people that is very self-sufficient and is happiest just locking himself alone in a room and learning about something or learning how to do something or reading about something or consuming, you know, culture that, that would bring me comfort. And all those things are absolutely still true. And most of those things kind of have played into my my adult life and, and, and my adult career. Um but no, I don't, I don't have any memory of any teacher or adult, you know, suggesting that I start thinking about what I would do for a job as an adult. I have no memory of that. That's pretty wonderful. I guess I guess it is. Yeah. Yeah. As I was saying, it, I was thinking that's pretty bad. But actually, no, you're right. That's pretty good because you shouldn't be thinking about that stuff when you're a kid. I mean... I don't think you should be thinking about it when you're like 15, but you know, because like who, when, at one point in your life, is it appropriate to start planning the rest of your entire existence? I, it's, I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm 50 and I don't do it now. I can't do that. <laughs> you know, whenever, you know, me and my wife will occasionally have a sort of, you know, a kitchen table talk about, about, you know, we, we, we had one this week where, you know, here in the UK, we just had an election and a lot of people, and it was horrible. And a lot of people, um, are saying, well, maybe this isn't the country where I feel most at home anymore. And, you know, so you have these these kitchen table, middle-aged, grown-up conversations about what will we do for the rest of our lives. I, I can't. I can't. I just I just want to go and play video games. Um, <laughs> it's too it's too much. Um, but, yeah, obviously, obviously you should. <laughs> To a certain extent, I mean, yes, it's a certain, but that isn't that the the balance of all existence is finding the right spot in between. I have prepared enough to execute whatever it is I'm about to do successfully, and also I've left enough room for for the universe to take over a little bit, and that's where some of the best some of the best stuff comes from is when you hit that sweet spot between the two things. Yeah, that's really true. And it, and it's like it's like I just said about, you know, many of the things that that I kind of lent towards as a kid, the sort of self-sufficiency, the the enjoying just being on my own and making things or learning things. Those things I I didn't know back then, but those are things that 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 create the foundations of of my work now. So, yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's it's that it's like it's like a boxer training for a fight. You don't train exactly how the fight is going to go, but you train your body and your mind so that whatever happens, your muscles will know what to do. Do you know what I mean? You 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 train for the eventualities. So I guess it's it's kind of like that to create a person that I don't know that has a a skill set that will be adaptable and useful. I don't know what I'm talking about now. Um, <laughs> I've gone off on a tangent that has just gone into a cul-de-sac. A tangent into a cul-de-sac. That's great. <laughs> A tangent into a cul-de-sac, the name of my next one-man show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, man. Um, so for anybody out there who doesn't know about Matt, Matt has a website and on his website is his TED Talk, um, which is really wonderful. And it gives you a little bit of a, a, a brief on some of your, your career trajectory. And there's a really great story right at the beginning of that talk about how you took a test in school to find out what career you should have. And it came back funeral director. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, it was it was either either a social worker or funeral director, and it was funny when I did that TED talk. You know, normally at that point, I I you know that that line gets a laugh because it is funny. Um, except it didn't get much of a laugh at that TED talk because one of the previous speakers was a funeral director <laughs> who had been really inspiring. Oh, man. <laughs> so everyone was like, "Oh no!" But that woman who came on, she was great. We want to that that was an amazing speak. You know. Um, yeah, but it's it's true, and I think it, it it was one of those tests where you fill in all your kind of strengths and weaknesses academically and 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 stuff, and then they fed it into a you know a a nineteen seventy nine computer, um, and I think it it may be on reflection. I think it just kind of picked up on I don't know um, the fact that you wanted to be alone in a dark room because <laughs> yeah. Um, I think perhaps that I that I wanted to to communicate with people, maybe, and you know, that's the only thing that I can that I, that that makes the the only line between what I currently do and those two jobs is that they involve a sort of a, a, a helpful communication with people. But I mean, you know, I a funeral director. I I have I have nothing but fear and stress over death so i'd be the absolute worst funeral director i'd just be sitting in a corner crying the whole time yeah it 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 definitely seems like the kind of job that requires a very specific kind of person and i don't know who that person is exactly i also imagine it's cultural right because a funeral director in the uk is going to be different than a funeral director in china or something like that and because Mm. you know the the relationship with death is different based on the culture but yeah i can't i don't know i i don't being the kind of person who experienced a lot of death as a small child because a lot of the like my grandparents were much older than everyone else's grandparents and so we lost a lot of people when I was very small I do remember going down into the part of the funeral home when I was like 10 to pick out a casket for one of my grandparents because my parents were going down there and I we, we had just bought a car very recently before that and so I said to my dad it's kind of like a car showroom and everyone just like completely came unglued with laughter because this child had just like and what a what a true uh um simile that you know like the 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 way that my brain was kind of like taking these two very different situations but drawing a parallel between them based on the fact that you're basically shopping for an item and you're walking through a showroom and my concern at the time was that there would be people in them and my dad was like no that's not how they wow yeah but you can see that would be yeah and i can i can see how that would be a concern because in 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 the rest of your sort of cultural experience of coffins they have people in right exactly and so yeah and and so it would make sense to me that in the same way that you test drove a car that you would want some sort of frame of reference for how this box would accommodate the person you're going to put in them 
man, I was really precocious as a child, but this isn't about you. <laughs> this is about you. So social worker, you said was the other, the other option. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, I did, um, train uh, I, I did a two-year course in uh, uh child psychology focused social care that was what i thought might be my job but only because i didn't really know what i wanted to do you know and, and at that point i by the time i started doing that college course i i had learned to to juggle and i i don't think i quite got to the point yet where i thought maybe it would be a job but i knew that it was the thing that i loved that i found interesting so I kind of did this two-year course and, and did really well. And then at the end of the course, um, there's this perfect moment that I only realized was, was a perfect moment, you know, in, in later life. At, towards the end of the course, someone at the college who I'd become friends with was leaving their job and basically told me that I was a shoo-in to, to take their position, to take their job. And I'd have to go for an interview, but it was a formality and, you know, it was a kind of done deal. And I went for the interview and basically got laughed out the room that that was obviously not true. Um, I was not a shoe in every other candidate there was way more qualified. It was absolutely embarrassing that I would think that that, you know, I, I was not qualified for that job, but I'd been told that it was. And I think at that point, a little switch flipped in me that just went, OK, this idea of a kind of formal work structure is maybe full of liars and con men and and that just helped me lean back into being self-sufficient and yeah and then I became a busker <laughs> <laughs> so you talk about in your TED talk that you went on vacation with your family and that was the first time that you were watching someone juggling yeah we went to went to a a, a folk music festival um which was so odd because my parents had no interest in folk music but one week a year apparently they did and we went to this North Yorkshire town, which is in the sort of northeast coast of, of Britain. And it's a, it's a place called Whitby, which is, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful town. And every year it has a, uh, a very famous uh, goth festival, Whitby Goth Week, which is fantastic. Um, but this wasn't that. <laughs> and it was, you know, as you might imagine, a, a, a festival of folk music in in the north of England is just about the whitest, most middle-aged thing ever you know it's i mean do you I mean, you know as 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 a as a person who is not from england do you know what morris dancing is so ironically yes i do know what morris dancing is it involves like batons and men in something that resembles lederhosen jumping around right is that i'm i'm, I'm way over general yeah i'd never thought yeah. of it as lederhosen but no that's that's way more detail than anyone needs to know um <laughs> it's 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 a stupid, stupid folk dance done by middle managers from local banks on a weekend. It, it's the worst. And this festival basically had, um, and I'm not exaggerating, like 30 different Morris dancing groups that I was forced to watch as a child on my holiday, on my vacation. And But, but also there was this uh, group of just crazy street performers called the fabulous salami brothers and that's amazing oh god they were so good they just i i i i i get emotional talking about it um so they were a fictitious family the salami family and each one was something salami so there was um the kid was chipolata salami um there was uh uh, uh there was 
uh, a strongman called Muscle Salami. Um, and it was just ridiculous. It was a ridiculous act. But the front man was, was this guy called, called Ricardo Salami. And he was a juggler. He wasn't very good, but he was pretty, but, but he was fine. But he was a showman. He had charisma and he was funny and he had a glint in his eye, you know. And I, I remember as a kid just just watching him get a crowd out of nothing, just using his his smarts I, on a on a piece of street, on a bit of street that isn't designed for a show, redefining what that area is for just by sheer force of will and craft, deciding this can be a theatre if I say so and everyone's invited and... Oh God, that was so magical. So for the first sort of few days, I was his biggest fan. And then I slowly realized I wanted to be him. And yeah, by the time I, I went home from my vacation, I went to the pet shop at the end of my street and I bought three rubber dog balls and I got a book out of the library on how to juggle. And that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> so <clears throat> I know this is going to sound like a really silly question, but there's no formal training for these kinds of things right i feel like we've all heard of like clown school that that must be yeah. like an actual thing right a place where you can go to learn cer a certain amount of like juggling and other kinds of like how to do a proper pratfall so as not to hurt yourself and things like that yeah um i think particularly in the states uh, i think i'm right in saying that a lot of the big circuses run clown schools and clown programs and summer schools and stuff in the uk there are these days there are a couple of there's a place called circumedia and there's a, a place in london called the circus space they teach all sorts of circus and variety skills um but back when i started it now there was nothing um for you know variety as an art form back then was pretty much dead it, it, you know, it's it's had a resurgence recently on the back of kind of burlesque and cabaret and with Cirque du Soleil has brought it, you know, has, has kind of redefined it in a certain direction that I may not be the biggest fan of. Um, but back then it was it was seen as absolutely dated and and unfashionable and, and done as an art form, which I didn't I didn't care about because I just knew how this guy had made me feel that it was as simple as that. So I, yeah, so I, that was when, as I said earlier, you know, I, I've always been that kid who will just lock himself away in a room and, and on his own learn something. And that's exactly what I did. I just, my parents showed very little interest. I didn't have any friends really to talk about this sort of stuff with. So I just got a book, I got three balls and I just locked myself away and, and learned the book, you know, learned everything I could learn. I think I would be a really crap interviewer if I did not point out the fact that there is a clear dichotomy here between the kid who locks himself away to learn all the things and someone who performs in front of people to make their living. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and I mean, as an only child, I very like that dichotomy exists within me and I totally get that. But I'm, I'm just curious, like, how do you I mean, you write about I'm jumping around now, but like you write about um, mental health and things like that on your blog very eloquently, I might add. And I think that is a it's a huge struggle that I think a lot of people that I've spoken to, whether whether they actually deal with like public speaking as part of their job, but that dichotomy between who I am as an introvert, maybe I don't necessarily want to give it that title, but who I am as someone who doesn't necessarily always want to be around people and my job are kind of like at odds with each other sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. So, so 
yeah, so this is this is the therapy session section of the podcast because <laughs> um, there's no other way to, to 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 talk about it really. You know, so here's what happened: is I was this shy kid who found the thing he was in love with, which was these sort of circus and variety skills, and at no point did I that like there was no point where I sat down and went, well, now I've learned these tricks. Well, damn, I have to go out and and perform them. It was just my it was it was a complete fantasy to be a performer. I used to literally daydream about it on a daily basis. Um I'm I, I'm way older than you, but but there was a, a show in the eighties, a TV show uh, called Fame that was a, a spin-off from the film Fame, which is a very good film. And it was about a performing arts school. And it was like a hour long uh, drama every week and it had songs and, and, and it, like, every, every so often they'd all burst into song and dance and I god I loved it so much um, and I used to put on the, the, the fame records and imagine I was I was in those gangs and, and I could be that confident and you know and oddly a couple of the performers from that show are now my real life friends which is a ridiculous thing to have happened but it was all fantasy and then it became slowly it just kind of became it, it felt inevitable and and especially because I started as a street performer which is you know it's not even that I had an audience already there and my first few times on stage I could do a little bit and you know my first time performing was walking out on onto the piazza at Covent Garden completely empty piazza and having to draw a crowd out of nothing on a drizzly Tuesday um, and do a half hour show on my own that was my first, you know, and, and I did some, I don't know how I did, but I think it was, I, th I think there's an element of this is all I've got. This is my only thing that is meaningful to me in my life at the moment. So, you know, it, it, it had better work, but then what happened is as I got more comfortable on stage, cause I was still, and am still very shy in real life. As I got more comfortable on stage, I started to sort of refine what I do, and I started to research old variety acts, and I uh, I, I found these these hundred year old variety acts who were called gentlemen jugglers, and they dressed really well, and they were kind of cool, witty people that showed off with you know hats and canes and champagne bottles. And I thought, yeah, that's what I want to be. I want to be the opposite to what I really am in real life. I don't want to be shy. I want to be cool and witty and 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 liked you know and and stylish and and uh, knowledgeable about the world and cultured so over the years and, and decades i slowly crafted this on stage persona that was that and then that became the real me and the shy kid kind of withered and and the on stage persona kind of leaked into my real life and that's mostly who i am now at the same time, when I started performing, I had to pick a stage name. So it became such, I mean, this, you know, my therapist laughs at this. It became such an obvious thing that there was this shy kid who had the name he was born with. And then I chose a new name and crafted a new persona for my onstage work, which gave me the confidence to, to, to grow in, in real life offstage. I, it's so fat, like, this is very weird to me because obviously I, you mentioned I'm younger than you. My career has, they're not related at all. I'm not anywhere near as successful as you are. Maybe one day I will be. But the thing about the name is mind boggling to me because I don't think anybody has ever 
really asked me about the reasoning behind using a nom de plume when I started to write about wrestling and why I was the Lady J and technically still am the Lady J for such a long time. But yeah, it's a it's a huge part of if I'm going to be who I really want to be, not that I have, I I love my real name. I'm one of two in the whole world. So there's nothing wrong with it. But it was just like, I need to take all the things that I feel on a day-to-day basis and compartmentalize them into that name so that this other name can be all of the things I maybe am not yet, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. And and I think everyone does that to, to a usually more subtle degree. You know, everyone is, you know, constructs themselves over their life you know, knocks off the bits they don't like and uh, if if they can, you know, not everyone can, I guess. Um, but I think, yes, yeah, certainly having the ability to change your name and in my case, change very visibly how I dress and how I present myself. Um, it, it's, it's super empowering. And, and you know, me and my therapist have talked about how healthy it, it is and come to the conclusion that well i'm happier now than i than that kid was so it seems to be okay (laughs) so one of the things that i really enjoy about your like following your social presence is the way that you talk about the other people that you work with because it would be very easy to assume that your your career is a very solitary thing because you do one man shows, but at the same time, you often work as part of a larger collaboration of an entire production in which your act is one part. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I, (laughs) I get the kind of ego boost of touring around with my one man theater show, which is all about me and come and see me. It's me on the poster. I am great. But also, as you say, I, I, you know, a lot of my bread and butter work is like last night is a perfect example. Last night I did, it was a, a Christmas party gig, at a cabaret venue that I like very much. So I was on with a, uh, a singer and a burlesque performer and uh, a two circus acts. Um, and yeah, and, and the, the resurgence in, in burlesque and cabaret has, it's 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 certainly been very helpful for me, not just in terms of I get gigs from it, but just suddenly there's this community of of people who have found, as I did, have found a place where they can do their thing and be themselves. Um, and it is, as a very happy sort of plus, it is generally a female-led industry working to a predominantly female audience employing predominantly female performers you know that's when the other thing that it's most like is i guess the stand-up world where that is none of those things are true you know that it's is very different um and, and much in my experience much much less fun and much less friendly but backstage at a cabaret or burlesque gig it's all hugs and all jokes and Everyone does something different, so there's no feeling of competition. Everyone is there for each other. You know, um, I, I I worked last night with a, a burlesque performer who I've known for, for years, and you get these little moments of, like, real, genuine, unfiltered showbiz poetry, you know? And she um, 
she did a fan dance and she she she's one of those um burlesque performers who doesn't like a fan dance is traditionally very kind of gentle and you get a little glimpse of, of flesh here and there between the fans she goes out there and just thrashes she just loses herself and thrashes and she comes off stage and she's fan danced so hard her hands are cut to ribbons and you just go that is that is showbiz right there that is it you sacrificed you know and I just that that those little moments of poetry for me is the whole point of all of this you know that's amazing in it because it's funny when you said fan dance, the first thing that came into my head was I just watched White Christmas. And so I'm picturing, um, is it Vera <laughs> Ellen and Rosemary Clooney with their big blue feathery, feathery fans the first time we see yeah. them in the film. That is not the same thing as what you are describing at all. No, she 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 works those fans like they're weapons, you know, it's, it's fantastic. And that's the great thing about these small, you know, they, 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 these are not huge shows the audience last night was maybe 300 um it's a good size i'm not complaining but it's not you know i'm not playing you know madison square garden but everyone is in charge of their own act everyone can do what they like it's all you know it's an expression of themselves and and the audience gets that the audience understands they're seeing a, a bill of individuals doing their thing and that and that makes it so much um oh, I, yeah I, I think it makes it important and of worth. So one of the other things that you mentioned in your TED talk was about how you ended up starting to travel with your act. Was that something that you had as a goal that you wanted to travel the world as part of what you were doing? Or was it something that you kind of fell into in a different way? It was, yeah, it's a good question. I think um for the first sort of i guess third of my career i was i was mostly happy to have found a thing that worked for me you know i i found street performing i'd found a place in london i could work i found a family of new friends who understood me and who were wonderful and inspiring um and i was making money um so i was like okay cracked it you know fine brilliant and I, I remember actually someone, a, 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 an older street performer, asking me at about that time where I saw myself going. And I, I remember saying, I'm happy doing this. This is good, you know, which is true. But then, yeah, I, th I think I think I got offered a couple of things. There were street performing festivals all, all, all over the world. Um, and if you have a decent reputation, if people like you, you'll get in invitations to go. Um, and I started getting a few of those. And then I realized how sort of small my world was and as soon as i started traveling it was like oh of course of course i need to do this of course now i need to see every single country and work to as as, as many different kinds of people as possible and 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 unlock the puzzle of how i do my show to an audience in japan or or italy or south africa or you know how i change my my the way I perform and change my cultural sort of signifiers to succeed with different cultures and different countries and different sorts of people. That's, I, I, I love that puzzle. And yeah, these days I, tra I travel a lot and it's, there's not a minute where I'm not totally aware of the immense privilege that I have in, in being able to do that. In, and and it, is, it is very precious to me and very important that I can, you know, I'm, I'm now the kind of git that, you know, knows a good bar or a good restaurant pretty much in, in any city in the world. You know, so if someone says to me, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, to San Juan, Puerto Rico, I can say, oh, I know a really good Italian restaurant there, which is true, I do. Um, 
because <laughs> you know i, I yeah it the, to, to to get to travel and to get to meet the people of wherever you've traveled to by doing shows to them is such a privilege it, it, it's ridiculous to to be lucky enough to 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 travel to a place you've never been before and get there and on your first day of work there's a thousand people waiting to meet you to see the reason you've you know to see you do your thing that will never get old that will never not be the shiniest most wonderful thing you know how sorry every time you say something i have like more more questions that pop up (laughs) how do you communicate in countries where english is not because talking is part of your your act yes um the the beauty part of um being uh born in a country that has a uh, <laughs> a hellish history of of global colonialism <laughs> is is that english is quite uh, popular around the world um so thanks uh, awful ancestors um so yeah in most countries i sp- I, I can speak english um especially because my kind of onstage persona is very sort of English gentleman. So it's expected. Um, The first time I ever worked in Japan, uh, I I learned, I didn't learn my whole act in Japanese, but I learned half of it in simplified Japanese. Um, And I did the first couple of shows and it did okay. And then this American performer who I didn't know, but he, he knew me. Um, who had been working in Japan for quite some time, he took me for a coffee in between shows. And he said, can I offer you some advice? And I was like, please. And he said, work in English. They've, for, for, for two reasons. Number one, if you're not fluent in Japanese, it just sounds, you know, shonky. It doesn't sound great. But also, it, and it, this was such wisdom. He said, they've come to see an English act. Give them the English act they want. Be English. And he's like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. Don't pretend to be something you're not, you know. Um, and I did the act in English and, yeah, you, you, know, you simplify it a little bit, but it worked fine. And, and, and it got better reactions because it was, I was delivering a more authentic, uh, you know, piece of work. In, you know, I, I, I do a lot of work in, in Germany and I always start my show with the same gag. Um, I say, uh, just before we start, uh, I am English. And that gets a laugh because I'm obviously English. I say, the show is in English. And that gets a laugh too. And I say, but if there's anything you don't understand, just ask me in English. And it gets a nice laugh and it and it sets them up that I'm going to be in English. And then what happens is they they really listen to the act because they want to show off to their friends that they understand me. So you you play this little bit of social engineering where you give them the chance to, you know, they they, they laugh and clap more. Because they want everyone to know, yeah, I got that gag. I understood. Yeah, you know. So, so you kind of, it's a bit of a con trick. But, but yeah, it, in almost every country I've worked, I work in English. Occasionally, I've, I've got some stuff that is silent and choreographed to music. So I occasionally do that. Um, the only place that I haven't succeeded in, in, <laughs> in English was Italy, where um, they, they literally just look at you and go, nope. <laughs> no, nope, nope. Respect our culture, bitch. <laughs> it's like, oh god, okay. Which is brilliant because I have this fake Italian name. <laughs> they were like Ricardo. So, yeah. What is this? What is happening? Yeah, no, they're literally. You know how 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 dare you have that name? 
and not speak Italian. It's yeah, that was that was a little un- embarrassing. If I were you, I'd be like, it's the Salami Brothers' fault. That's why. Yeah, let's talk to them. Maybe exactly. Blame my inspiration. You mentioned this um, American giving you advice. How? much advice like do you feel like now because you are such an established person that people ask you for a lot of advice do you feel like maybe I shouldn't be giving so much advice or I I try not to give advice because I I feel like I don't necessarily like how how does that work because I feel like in a in an industry like this the advice or the feedback that you can one act can give another act might be might vary a lot but it might also be very important Mm, that's interesting that's an interesting question um hmm, i mean in terms of being established i don't know i you know i i I was once described by by a very good friend of mine who who was hosting a show that i was on and she brought me on stage by saying uh he is uh, a legend in an incredibly niche industry (laughs) which was such a backhanded compliment i I, yeah but i mean people do occasionally ask me for advice but i think i don't know uh that's really that, that's really got me thinking. I think my my yeah my I think my any advice that I would offer would be would be quite kind of quite kind of uh, more about the craft than the art, if that makes sense. You know, little things that the stuff that sticks with me. The advice I was given early on was that really basic, usable stuff. Like uh, I remember my friend Vinny telling me once that I was when I went back to my suitcase to get something out, I was turning my back on the audience and don't ever turn your back on the audience and stuff like that, where you, it's obvious unless you know it, you know, and things like don't put something on the floor because then you have to bend down and pick it up and that looks messy. Put it on a table, get a tape, you know, things, little things like that were that are, you know, that, that and, and, and stuff like, okay. So there was a very famous uh, uh, British magician who had a TV show for like 20 years um, who was an inspiration to me, a, a guy called Paul Daniels, who is no longer with us. And Paul Daniels uh, had opinions about real life that were not always the best, but he had a lifetime in show business and knew, you know, he was the person for advice. And he once, th- this this is something of his that I always kind of pass on. He said that uh, a magic show is a play about someone who can do anything. And it's it's that thing of, if you're a magician or a juggler or an acrobat or a wrestler or, you know, it, don't just think of yourself as you are just a, a that. You are just a magician or a wrestler. Think of yourself as a performer who just who, who works in that in that world. But you're doing theatre. You know, what you're doing has all the same kind of bits of carpentry as theatre does. It still has character and narrative and context and meaning and a structure and a flow. And, and a lot of people that do the kind of thing I do, that do an act kind of forget that they're doing theatre, that it's a play, you know? And once you remember that it is, then you can start to look at your act through through a, a lens that is slightly more interesting and create something more interesting, less, you know, something more unique, more personal maybe. So that I think that's the advice that I kind of always give, that, that and, you know, be authentic. Put yourself into your work. Make it meaningful to you. Tell them, there we go, this is, this is the... The, the perfect thing and it's a wrestling analogy because everything is a wrestling analogy <laughs> it is in on this podcast that's for sure it is but wrestling is because wrestling is a sort of shorthand theater you can use wrestling to to explain anything in theater it's fantastic my wife is sick of it but i use wrestling for every analogy so if you walk into a, a wrestling show halfway through a match and you see two people having a wrestling match it doesn't really matter how good they are you'll watch it and you'll go Okay. Okay, that was cool. Yeah. Right. 
but you'll you'll be unable to care past a certain point. But if you you are at the beginning of that wrestling match and you know the past six months of storylines that has led up to these two people finally being able to get their hands on each other. You know how they used to be friends, how one betrayed the other, how this happened and that happened. And, and you know, you, you know all the, the narrative and the character and the context and the theater leading up to that first punch. You're on the edge of your seat before they've done anything. So it's not about the trick. It's not about what you do. It's about the, the, the theater that you wrap it in. It's about all the, the, the tricks of, of theater and narrative and context that you can, that you can wrap it in and then you'll make people care. And then once they care about you, you can do some, you know, whatever you do, they're more invested in because they, they care about the person doing it. I So I recently took a, a seminar on ring announcing and commentary for wrestling um, in uh, in Philadelphia oh, nice. at the Chikara Wrestling School. And the... Oh, lovely. So, so I was... My, my seminar came from Mike Quackenbush, which was pretty cool. Oh, see, he knows what he's talking about. Yes. And that's that was one of those things that as somebody who studied theater in school, I have always put like this weird lens of theater over wrestling. And it wasn't until I heard him talking that I was like, oh, no, that's not you're not coming up with something new that no one's ever heard of, idiot. Like, that's what wrestling <laughs> is like, because he the other thing too is that I've never really had because I never went to wrestling school because I fall down just walking. I don't need to get in a wrestling ring and hurt myself. That <laughs> I I never really thought about the fact that a good wrestling match, just a like basic quality wrestling match, has three acts, just like theater. Mm-hmm. If you don't have those three acts, you cannot tell a quality story in the ring. No matter if you have five minutes or you have an hour, you need all three acts. And listening to him talk about that, I was like, most good performance has some kind of structure to it. So there's a climax somewhere, whatever that might be, depending on what kind of performance you're doing. But yeah, I had never really thought about that before. So now I watch everything to see, like, does this have, is this book? Does this book have a good structure? Does this, of course, books have to have structure. But like, now I'm like questioning all of the, like th- this album that I'm listening to, does Born to Run have a three-act climactic structure or, Ooh. you know? <laughs> oh, now I'm going to be thinking about that all day. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the other things that you mentioned in your TED Talk is about what your experience over your career has allowed you to give back to to cabaret or variety. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that, because I feel like it was just kind of the end of that talk and you didn't really get to ex- expand on it at all. Oh, remind me what I said. So I think you were kind of talking about getting to come come and be a part of a resurgence like you were talking about this before like a resurgence for variety and do you feel like the experience that you've had over your career you've gotten well I mean you did America's Got Talent didn't you no don't tell people (laughs) I'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) yes no I did I did so but that's an opportunity to put eyes not just on yourself obviously but also on the type of work that you're doing so that it maybe encourages people to seek that work out wherever they are located locally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I think yeah, it's it's interesting whether the 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 Got Talent shows have been beneficial or not to my industry. It, it's a it's a long a long conversation. I had you know, I I um I dislike those shows very much, and I did them 
I, 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 I've done that one. I did that one because for it's a long story, but I was basically challenged to do it. So I did it because I can't turn down a challenge. But Oh, yes. You wrote about that, yeah. didn't you? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a fascinating experience. You know, at, at this point in my career, I'm one of the main reasons I will do anything is if I think I'll have an adventure and get a story out of it, you know, so and, and I knew that I would on that one. Um, but it was it was a horrible experience to do. But basically, it was not a pleasant thing to film. They are very manipulative and fairly unpleasant to work with, I found personally. But they made me look great. I came across very well. So hopefully, people that see a you know a little snippet of something interesting on television might seek it out in in real life or or, or seek out things like it. And because of social media, it's it's now beautifully easy and simple for somebody who sees me anywhere in the world to connect with me and find out where they might be able to see me again and that's amazing you know the flip side of that is every single time I'm on television someone will create an account on Twitter just so they can call me all the worst words but that's that's the internet for you people are awful have you met them they're awful in in terms of the resurgence of 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 cabaret um yeah, it's it, it. I'm. I'm. Yeah, I'm kind of flailing about the question now. <laughs> you okay? Let me let me try rephrasing the question. So you've had a pretty successful career. I'm I'm trying not to like. I, sometimes I say I use like really hyperbolic words, and then people panic that they're like, "No, that's too much. To bring it in, I'm not that successful." But you've had a successful career. Do you feel? that it's important for you to give back to an industry that has given you the opportunity to do the things that you really wanted to do. Hmm. Yes. I, yeah, I think I'm, I'm not sure exactly how, how one gives back other than by doing good work and providing space for other people to, to good work, you know? See, but that I think is such a hard thing it's something that gets talked about in m- most industries right now is how you're creating space for other people, especially people who are very different than you. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and that's you know, in in cabaret, it's the you, you well, you you would assume and hope that cabaret and burlesque and, and that world is of you know f- falls on the more tolerant side and the more uh, current thinking side you know mm-hmm. um so yeah i mean when you know i i compare and curate my own variety shows fairly often and you know and there's no way to say this without sounding like the most awful pandering white middle-aged guy but you know i try as hard as i possibly can to have a good gender balance to have as many people of color to have as many uh non-binary people as i possibly can because i don't want anybody in the audience to feel unrepresented even if, even if I was the most horrible fascist who thought that all of these people were scum and didn't deserve a place, if I was still an entrepreneur, I would want my audience to be happy and come back next next time and buy another ticket. So there's even if I'm the worst person, there's no reason to not do this. And actually, I'm not a bad person. I think people are generally good, so therefore you should be good to them. Unless they're on the internet and then they're awful. Well, people on the internet are awful, yes. <laughs> I speak as someone who is on the internet. Um, but, you know, it's it seems so blatantly, brutally obvious that y- you should have as many different kinds of people on stage because you don't know who's in the audience. You know, so therefore you don't want to run the risk of anybody in your audience feeling 
ignored, feeling unrepresented. That's, it seems basic humanity. Um, and also, by having as many different kinds of people on stage, the show is more interesting. It's Again, it's basic. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a long conversation. You know, diversity of all sorts, not just, you know, of, of ethnicity and gender and identification, but also of kinds of act, of where you're from, of the way you approach your art form. It all makes a, a show like mine more interesting and, and more unique and more, uh, yeah, better. So I, I certainly work very hard to, to, to achieve that as much as I can in the shows that I curate. As I said earlier, you know, I'm lucky to work in industry where many of the shows, certainly most of the shows, are produced by women for a predominantly female-identifying audience, um, usually headlined by women. You know, that that's so rare. But in Cabaret and Burlesque, it's not. And that's that's very nice. That's a nice thing to – a nice little army to be a part of. Strangely enough, and it's not strange at all, the only people that I've had on this podcast previously who are involved in, in burlesque they do a, a wrestling podcast together, two women, and one of them owns and runs the burlesque company and the other one occasionally performs for her. Like it's so it's just what my experience of burlesque is that, yes, it is a female dominated industry because that is those two people are my my sort of um I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is like entryway, I guess, into burlesque. So if you had asked me, I would have said, oh, yeah, it's it's a it's a woman's world. No, it absolutely is. The the uh, the show I did last night was compared by a woman, produced by a woman, booked by a woman. The one I did before that was hosted by a woman and produced by a woman. The one I did before that was produced and hosted by three women. Absolutely female dominated. Yeah. And that's just I, I don't know. It's. Well, I guess if you've got a female audience too, like the hope, like you said, if you want to have a show that is made up of people who are reflective of their audience and you already know that it's an industry that has a high rate of female audience members, then yeah, having more women working behind the scenes as well as on stage is going to help to facilitate that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's the, the, I think one of the big fallacies about, about, burlesque particularly is that it's that the male gaze is is involved and it's it's really hardly involved in at any point it's um like last night i watched this performer that i mentioned who who fan danced uh, so hard she cut her hands and i was watching the this table of women just responding to her like fierceness you know just feeling it and then just like yes yes it was so nice um and that's not about the male gaze and it's not really about sex or titillation it's about self-expression i have a friend who's been living in denmark and while she's been there she has um taken up pole dancing as her form of exercise and she's going to be leaving denmark soon and so she did an exhibition for her pole dancing school and she, you know, did a routine and she put a costume together and everything. And she posted the video of, of it on her Instagram. And the thing that really struck me about it, besides the fact that as for someone who's only been doing this for three years, like how far she has come in her technique, but also the sound of the other women. And I think there's probably a preconceived notion about not just Danish women, but just women from that northern part of Europe, that they're very 
demure is not even the word, but conservative, I guess, just in their the way that they behave. To hear them screaming and hollering for her was just so wonderful, not just because she's my friend and I love her and I think she deserves all the support in the world, but just to hear a bunch of women supporting a woman in doing this incredibly physically difficult thing was just so cool because what people think of when they think of pole dancing it's a very like highly sexualized thing yeah no that's great and and pole dancing as a discipline is it's you know obviously it has some roots in 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 strip culture but also it's got roots in uh circus disciplines it's there's a circus discipline chinese pole which is a lot of the moves come from that so yeah it's so awesome. She has so much more upper body strength than I will ever have in my entire life. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to start to wrap up here. What what would you like to see more of in your industry in the future? Ooh, um, me! <laughs> <laughs> totally valid answer. <laughs> um I what would I like to see more of? Um, I mean, the the easy answer is I would like there to be TV shows that showcase the art forms of uh, variety and cabaret and circus um, that are not competition based. You know, um, I am sick of a format where they where a show will pit creative artists against each other as if it's some kind of sport. Like there can be only one winner. And it's it's laughable because the point of a variety show is we all do different things. We all coexist. Something for everyone. That's, you know. So in, you know, in a perfect world, my fantasy, my absolute, you know, and it will never happen. But my fantasy is for there to be a, a TV show, ideally with me hosting it, but not necessarily, <laughs> um, that is a a representation of of my experience of a cabaret or variety show the 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 intimacy the the conversation with the audience the the glamour the beauty and the coolness of it all the fact that you can go to a small cool looking venue and see something right in front of your eyes that you have never seen before the fact that that you know that every other act on the bill will genuinely make the audience gasp how often do you hear an audience actually gasp that involuntary noise you can't force a gasp I think I think David Mamet said that you can buy a standing O, but you can't create a gasp. You know, I I, I want to see something on screen that that captures the the absolute magic of of my experience of of variety and cabaret shows. I don't think it'll happen because I think shows like that need bankable names to front them, and there are no real bankable names in my world. It's a you know it's a small venue world, so that's a shame. But the good thing is that I I can carry on for the rest of my life, hopefully doing these things live and being able to look into the eyes of the front row and play with them and chat to them. And then occasionally me or somebody else will just blow their minds with something. And that's, you know, my, 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 my favorite thing in my professional life is is getting a gasp. It's it's I whenever it happens, I, I, I can't believe it has. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. I just want to carry on doing what I'm doing. I've been lucky enough that for the last 30 odd years, I've been able to pay the rent doing this. So that's kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm giving you the same answer that I gave my friend who in the first few years of my street performing career asked me what I wanted. And I, 
you know in the first few years of my street performing career my friend said how do you see your career going and I said I'm happy doing this and I'm giving you the same answer 30 years later but the thing is you had no idea what was coming around the corner for you then right yeah like, and, you, and you never do right exactly and that I think that's the I don't, I don't know I've had so many different just genuinely different people on this podcast talking about their relationship to their work and how it balances with the rest of their life and that I mean that conversation is both always valid and not always like important in the other dis greater discussion that I'm having but I think it's so interesting how some people are just so focused on one hard goal and and which is very very scary for me because if I put all my eggs yeah. in one basket I think I would have a nervous breakdown because if it I it's agree just completely. never going to work my experience in life is that it never turns out exactly the way that you planned and so having exactly. like we talked about earlier that room for letting the universe in in a, in some capacity is is the best way to not be horribly disappointed by your experience yeah. of being alive I I completely agree. So I, I think it's really, I, I'm not even going to use the word refreshing. I think it's just really important for someone like you to say, like, I'm just happy doing what I'm doing. Am I absolutely going to, you know, ride the wave of whatever comes next? Of course I am. I'm not stupid. But at the same time, like, being satisfied with what you're doing is not what's the word um it's not like a, a cop out it's not you saying like oh this is enough so i'm not going to try no you keep trying because you you there's always a way to make your act different or better or change it or grow it or whatever and and things will happen as yeah. a result of that yeah that's exactly right you my, my my kind of the way i approach work is you can get too obsessed with shooting for a particular gig or a particular i don't know agent or a particular deal or that's and, and it's not why I got into this business, you know. So, yeah, that you 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 just rem keep remembering that you're an artist and a maker. So just keep making work that you're proud of. Keep putting that work out into the world, and then that will encourage the unpredictable to 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 come to you. And then you never know what's what's going to happen. And, and the more good work you put out, the more interesting things will come your way, and, and you will be surprised by you know the 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 direction that you, that your path moves in. Well, I think that's as good as any place to end on. Matt Ricardo, could you please tell the people where they can find you on that horrible thing called the internet, should you choose to share that information? I mean, <laughs> the internet's not that bad. It's just sometimes is. Um, yes, I am uh, uh, Matt Ricardo. That's um, one T in Matt, M-A-T-R-I-C-A-R-D-O on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and I have a Facebook page that is i think it's matt ricardo official my agent set it up what do i know nothing um and i'm on uh yeah, a little bit on youtube a little bit on vimeo go to mattricardo.com for all of your matt ricardo based needs <laughs> there's lots of good stuff on there there's all the stuff that you we didn't even have time to talk about your your writing or anything like that because it's all very good and very you're very open and honest so if people want to get to know you a little better i think that's a really good way to do that Thank you. Yeah, I try to be honest on social media and I try to be honest on my blog because uh, life's too short not to be, right? Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. A debt of gratitude is owed to Matt Ricardo for sharing his story and his thoughts with me and so I could share them with all of you. He's given me so much to think about with regards to my own identity 
and how I balance my desire to be alone with my passion for performance. Who knows what may happen next in the life of the Lady J because of this very chat. You can find Matt on Twitter, as he said, at Matt Ricardo. You can find me on Twitter at the Lady J Says or on Instagram at the Lady J Slays. Make sure you come back next week for episode 20. 20 episodes. I'll speak to you then. Bye.